Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Revving Up History. Here today to talk about chapter 24 from your text, Nation at War, again discussing the U.S. and our role in World War I. Uh, again, kind of a beefy chapter. We'll try to stick to the high points and kind of keep it rolling. Hopefully sticking around that 10-minute mark. Thank you so much, and let's get going. All right, guys, so the first kind of, uh, you know, uh, third of the chapter or so focuses on the dynamics kind of after the Spanish-American War. Right, America finds itself as a world power now dealing with an international community and dealing with, um, you know, uh, cultures and interactions with certain groups that we've never really experienced before. Um, so we'll see this kind of beginning with Teddy, right, and what he uh, what is called his kind of a big st- uh, stick diplomacy and the Roosevelt Corollary, and then transitioning to Taft and his economic focus, and then, of course, to Wilson and his intervention in Mexico, as well as our role in World War One. I guess the first thing is, again, the effect of colonialism and colonialism and because of the aftermath of the Spanish-American War is drawing the U.S. into, national, into international affairs. And the first kind of big example of this and a good kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of test for our role, uh, especially our role in, in regards to the Caribbean and places like that, is going to be what happens with the Panama Canal. So the key thing, again, the canal project has been around for a long time, again, at one point under the control of the French and the British. Um, so the uh, kind of tough thing that goes on here is the situation between uh, two countries first, then of course the third uh, becoming a part of that as well, and that is the U.S. and Colombia. Um, basically, you know, initially kind of uh, deals are planned between uh, the U.S. and Colombia to hopefully transition control from uh, the British and the French to now the Americans finishing the construction of the of the Panama Canal. Uh, the Colombians do not like the terms of some of those early deals. And the U.S. kind of uh, in, in reaction to this and a good example of Roosevelt style basically promotes or aids in a revolution to separate Panama, which was a region of Colombia, into its own nation. And then now under an independent Panama permitting, you know, the, they will allow U.S. Con- to finish and to continue construction on the pa- uh, Panama Canal. Uh, so um, again, the U.S. kind of and it sort of takes a back door and uses some interesting tactics, right, to get Panama to be independent and then reaches a deal with Panama to control the canal zone for uh, close to 100 years. I think the original deal was for 99 years or so. Uh, so this is what we call uh, big stick diplomacy on the part of Roosevelt. And in addition to that, you need to know what's called the Roosevelt Corollary. And basically, this is the U.S. treating Latin America sort of, sort of almost like a territory or protectorate. And basically that the U.S. is kind of you know, warning these Latin American nations that if they do not keep their affairs in order, uh, the U.S. will intervene militarily if necessary. So this is really taking kind of the Monroe Doctrine and picking up another notch, saying that take care of your stuff, right? Pay your debts. If not, uh, troops will be sent in. And this is used multiple times uh, from Cuba to the Dominican Republic to, as we saw with Panama and the Canal Zone, um, and that's a big part of it. So again, the Roosevelt Corollary, that little kind of more aggressive version of the Monroe Doctrine, basically. Uh, we also see uh, Teddy's kind of foreign policy uh, interact a little bit with the Japanese. Um, with, in 1905, there is a, a Russian-Japanese war, which the Japanese are victorious in. And uh, it ends with an agreement on the part of the U.S. and uh, the Japanese uh, to kind of sort of keep a status quo in the Far East. But... Uh, no doubt now the Japanese are kind of a rising power and Roosevelt here is kind of trying to ensure that they understand and respect American, um, you know, kind of supremacy in certain regions and things like that. 
but by the time we get to you know the mid 1910s or so japan is seizing a lot of colonies especially german colonies in places like china and it is starting to be quite a bit aggressive so we see the rise of kind of a growing power in the japanese which of course we'll talk about later uh, as far as a taft's policy is kind of foreign policy is known as dollar diplomacy and just you know as it says with dollar diplomacy uh, the idea was to kind of in, instead of um, applying military force, right, like we did with the Roosevelt Corollary or the situation with Panama, everything was now kind of based on economic incentive and opening opportunities for American businesses or business interests to get involved. So this would be, you know, American bankers getting involved in the Caribbean or in South America. Um, again, economic sanctions against certain countries that maybe do not, you know, kind of play ball with us and things like that. That's the big sway is going from, again, that military pressure to now economic pressure to accomplish certain objectives. Uh, when we get to Wilson, right, he wins the election in 1912. Um, that's one thing that it kind of beats up his sort of resume is very inexperienced when it comes to diplomacy uh, and yet very lofty goals. But uh, his kind of plan was called moral diplomacy, where he kind of wanted to sort of, um, you know, take kind of a conscientious approach to affairs in Latin America and other places. You know, the kind of ultimate sad thing here is in a lot of ways he'll resort to, in a lot of ways, being kind of like Roosevelt. Um, you know, he intervenes more than both to Roosevelt or Taft in places like Latin America, you know, Mexico being the key example. And so, again, it doesn't really match up to maybe his rhetoric, but uh, it's interesting to kind of note that. Uh, as far as issues with Mexico, again, we don't have time to kind of cover every single little thing, right? Basically, there is a coup uh, led by a gentleman named Victoriano Huerta involving a disputed election, um, you know, just around 1910 or so. Ends up being a very massive war, right? Over a million dead or so, lots of migration up to uh, the United States from a lot of uh, you know, Mexican citizens who are escaping violence. Um, you know, this is where Wilson kind of gets involved from, you know, blocking armed shipments. And at one point, the view was had he accepted uh, Huerta's um, position as sort of the leader of the country, maybe violence and things like that would have calmed. But he refuses to because of the manner of the violence and the way things are going on down south. And uh, this kind of promotes a lot of people feel uh, a few more years of warfare. And uh, you know, again, the U.S. will be actively involved in, you know, in places like Veracruz with even troops on the ground. Uh, in 1916, the U.S. Army itself will pursue Pancho Villa the, around the U.S.-Mexican border uh, after he, um, him and his men uh, hurt some citizens, American citizens in New Mexico in 1916. So again, this is where we say that despite Wilson saying kind of this moral diplomacy, in a way he was trying to do that, right, with the violence he saw down south. But he's going to end up using the military in Mexico pretty uh, prominently in a, in a country that's really in a civil war with, a war with itself. So very, very fascinating. Um, this brings us, of course, to the U.S. involvement in World War I. So 1914, right, we have the outbreak of war in Europe with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. We'll cover all this in class. And you have the central powers headed by Germany, um, as well as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then the Allied powers headed by England and France, as well as Russia in the beginning of the war. And Wilson, you know, from a very early time, kind of sympathizes with England, sought, but neutrality is kind of the underlying theme here. Um, again, the U.S. will join, but much later. Uh, again, a lot of this stuff has to do with sentiment in the country. Progressives see it as wasteful and irrational. Right? Why is the U.S. going to get involved in things when we have so many issues going on back home? Child labor, right? Union issues, labor issues, tons of different things. Um, so a lot of you know people look at the war kind of critically. Um, we have a lot of immigrants, right, from both sides of this war. So no one wanted to kind of 
a lot of immigrant supported neutrality as well. Uh, so the, you know, the idea was there was little for the U.S. to gain and a lot to lose. So neutrality is going to kind of uh, pave the way early on. The situation where that gets the U.S. drawn in the war itself has to do with the freedom of the seas and naval issues, basically. Uh, but England had blockaded Germany, right? England kind of the strongest navy in the world. And uh, any U.S. ships trying to trade with Germany were seized by the British. So the U.S. is in kind of a weird situation where you know, we're trying to kind of benefit economically from both sides uh, that are fighting in this war. But the reality is Germany is kind of out of our grasp for trade. So this brings, it also brings us closer and closer into an economic relationship with especially England involving war goods and uh, things like that. Um, so the Germans, on the other hand, because of, of a new kind of innovation, right, in naval technology with a U-boat, are going to try what they can to disrupt uh, trade along the Atlantic Ocean. And slowly but surely, right, the U.S. will be embroiled in some of that and caught in the kind of crossfire between England and uh, Germany. So U.S. trade with the Allies is going to boom. Um, you know, by the time we get to the point of U.S. involvement, the Allies are owing the U.S. Uh, billions of dollars. So a lot of people point to this economic kind of link that, you know, was really kind of showing that oh, it was only a matter of time before the U.S. joined the side of the Allies. Uh, again, German submarines are continuously going to violate some of these, what is seen as, uh, you know, uh, passive uh, American trade ships in the Atlantic. Uh, the big one being in 1915 when the Lusitania sunk by a German U-boat. And Wilson is going to demand that the Germans uh, pay for those losses and, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and the Germans do kind of back uh, off a bit in May 1916. They make what's called the Sussex Pledge, where basically they honor U.S. neutrality. They won't target U.S. vessels. And, uh, you know, things look like they're going to hopefully get amended and stuff. And it's something that Wilson will use very smartly into his re-election campaign in 1916, when he faced a gentleman named Hughes for the Republicans. And uh, you know, it basically is what wins him the vote, wins him the uh, office once again. Now, the key thing here is, you know, the pledge is made in kind of mid-1916. Uh, By the time we get to February 1917, uh, the view in large part is that the Germans thought they had kind of a last hurrah to maybe achieve victory. And, uh, you know, they basically announced that uh, they're going to be uh, commencing unrestricted warfare. Basically, any boat out in the Atlantic, if it's an enemy, if it's non-German, right, or if it's not an ally of Germany, uh, will be shot down. So kind of a warning to the Americans, and again, you have the influence of the American trade already with England and all and the allies um, being very high as well. Uh, an added component with this that actually involves Mexico is the Zimmerman telegram, sometimes also called the Zimmerman note. Uh, and this is the uh, basically offer of a alliance between the uh, Germans and Mexico, asking Mexico to invade uh, the southern border of the US. And in return, once the war is completed in Europe, uh, the Germans would assist Mexico in reclaiming those lands lost from the Mexican, uh, the American or Mexican-American War, way back in the mid-19th century. You know, in all reality, right? Not really plausible for the, um, you know, Mexican government or Mexican armies at the time. They're busy in a revolution of their own, but uh, an interesting kind of component to the U.S. involvement initially. So this, you know, go, happens in April 1917. The U.S. declares war on Germany, and not too soon, or not too soon either, because. The Russians, you know, had begun as an ally, but then were under, you know, had their own revolution to uh, worry about. So they withdrew from the war and, you know, the U.S. kind of will step in at a good time to kind of reinvigorate the allies. Uh, so as U.S. enters, again, the allies are in a rough shape. Uh, you know, you had mutinies in the French army. The English and the French have been fighting for a long time. Uh, the Italian army had been routed. Um, 
but the U.S. will kind of give them a last, like, little kind of some morale boost and energy and, and, and you know, inflection that they'll need and stuff. So really, really important. Uh, as far as mobilization, again, not too great on the part of the U.S. You know, in general, things kind of moving kind of slow. But uh, they'll have 200,000 troops, mostly through volunteers in the beginning, and then through the Selective Service Act, basically the draft. And, you know, the now law it is to create and fill out a civil service card. Um, you know, there'll be close to 3 million troops mobilized by the war's end. As far as the battlefront and uh, all that stuff, in the war, and this is called the World War, right? It takes place on many, many areas. But the largely U.S. troops will be seen kind of in western France. Uh, and, I'm sorry, eastern France, the border with Belgium and stuff. So trench warfare, right? Tough fighting. Um, that was one thing that the U.S. will see plenty of uh, in that year and change of the war. Uh, some of the key things uh, the U.S.'s involvement, especially in the spring of 1918, things like the Battle of Argonne Forest. Um, and again, despite our only year or so in the war, we'll still lose a good number of troops, something about 100,000 or so. So uh, it'll have a big effect. Uh, some things going on back home that are uh, really important. Mobilization effort is pretty uh, you know, active. Uh, things like propaganda. A government is very, very intolerant and passes, passes things like the Espionage Act to basically discourage disloyalty or questioning of the war effort. Uh, the Sedition Act basically makes criticism of the war a crime. And, uh, you know, uh, over a thousand people are going to be in prison for kind of dissenting, for discouraging things like the draft and so forth. Uh, so pretty, uh, pretty wild stuff. You also have the situation in Russia during this time with the Red Scare where, uh, you know, Russia is basically this is when they're born into communism and the fear of that maybe that radicalism traveling uh, over the Atlantic into the U.S. was something that was very real and uh, something that worried a lot of people. Uh, as far as the organization for the war, we're going to have the War Industries Board, right, under Bernard Baruch, is basically going to kind of take over the U.S. economy and mobilize it for the war effort and will be very, very efficient. Um, in some cases, the government will seize businesses, right, and, this, and they'll just try to ensure things like uh, no work stoppages or anything because the idea was uh, to keep the economy turning and, and now mobilizing for weapons and things that will be needed for the war. Uh, some uh, benefits that are made... From some of these, um, you know, wages do go up a bit because they need steady work for uh, weapons and all the things necessary for war. We also see the beginning of a big African-American migration to the north uh, for, you know, some of these industrial jobs that will be vacated by a lot of the men going to fight uh, in Europe. So it's kind of the first wave of what we call the Great Migration, where African-Americans move to large northern cities, especially in the Midwest and the Northeast. Um, again, this is pretty ugly as well from 1917-1919. We see a good amount of race riots and some get very, very bloody uh, as we see this, you know, uh, introduction of so many African-Americans to the north and a lot of Americans just kind of not used to that and react violently. As far as the treaty to end the war, the Treaty of Versailles, um, there's a lot of concern at the meetings in France about the Bolshevik Revolution, right, or the turning, uh, uh, Russia turning to communism and now the Soviet Union. Uh, and we see Wilson take a pretty active role in the aftermath, uh, touring Europe, uh, promoting peace, and uh, we call this his 14-point plan. And not everything is accomplished, but uh, here he kind of shows his idealism and practice and hopefully trying to establish a better future for Europe and for the United States. Um, you know, the reality is England and France are kind of leading, you know, they're the kind of key victors in this war, and they dismiss many parts of the uh, 14 points. So they want to see Germany crippled. They want German colonies to be you know, split up. 
and uh, you know they're not kind of willing to agree with some things like self-determination which Wilson pulled for which is you know the calling for a lot of free and independent nations in Europe and so forth um, and uh, the treaty also called for the creation of a League of Nations which is passed that was one part of the 14 points that did go through you know the ultimate sad thing here is when Wilson comes back he can't even get his own Congress to agree to allow the US to join the League of Nations so this precursor to the UN right, this League of Nations that was supposed to ensure this, something like this large war never happening again. Um, easy, you know, it's, it doesn't even, the U.S. even never even joins that organization. Um, good. So one kind of last comment on World War One is the literally the changing of the map. Uh, you know, from the creation of places like Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, literally redrawing years and years of boundaries and I mean centuries of boundaries in especially Eastern Europe. And there's no doubt, right, and that's the important thing to kind of discover with World War One, is, you know, remember how hopefully you have in mind or you have some sense of how World War II begins. And that is with Germany basically taking um, and invading Poland. And, uh, you know, again, Poland was, didn't even exist up until, um, you know, after World War One. So, you know, a lot of these lingering things, the negativity, this resentment in Germany is going to feed into, you know, another war uh, in about 20 years or so. So it's important to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, again, as far as how it's treated back home and in kind of popular culture, um, you know, like a lot of uh, Europe, uh, you know, veterans from World War One or in the beginning of the war felt with a lot of pride and um, a lot of, um, you know, energy and things like that. But, you know, in the end, uh, even though it was good for American business, a lot of veterans returned uh, very kind of disillusioned with, um, you know, war itself and the death of kind of progressivism, right, is kind of another thing that is sort of a victim of the war. And this will be key for the 1920s because Warren Harding Range is going to win the election of 1920. Uh, this is what he promises. He promises, you know, no more of that internationalism. We're not going to get involved in that drama overseas. Uh, return to normalcy is what he calls for. So back to the way that things were, back to us focusing on domestic affairs. And, uh, you know, this feeling is important and it's going to lead to, it's, you know, part of the reason why uh, the uh, dictators rise uh, during the 1930s and you know, are in double until much later. Uh, thank you guys. Sorry for going crazy with the time. Um, have a great night. See you later.